All right. Hello, everyone. It's Jim Conley, Executive Marketing Manager for Anatomy and Physiology here at McGraw-Hill Education. Really excited to be here with you guys today on the this episode of Succeed in AP. I'm here with Steve Sullivan, a very good friend of mine, near and dear friend from Bucks County Community College. Steve, how are you doing today? I'm great. All right, well, ladies and gentlemen, I would like, Steve doesn't know I'm doing this, by the way, but I'd like to have a quick promotional announcement. Steve's wife, Tabitha Delangelo, we'll spell that later for you, uh, wrote an awesome book called Butterflies. And earlier this week, I think it was Steve or Tabitha or both together, uh, sent a copy of that for my son to have. My son's eight years old. And this story is all about butterflies and the strange and true story of their metamorphosis it's a fantastic book. I would highly recommend you purchase that for any of your children if you have them or if you need gift ideas. Really, now is the season. But congratulate uh, Tabitha, if you don't mind, Steve, and then thank you for sending that book, too. Oh, you're more than welcome. You know, I actually kind of forgot I sent that to you. <laughs> <laughs> I've been sending a lot of them out, and uh, and I remembered after I told you about it that I went and sent one to Miles. So I'm hoping, I hope he enjoyed it. Oh, he's probably he... a little old for it, but I thought it would be a cool a cool thing for him to take a look at. The, my wife's not the illustrator, but I've got to give a big shout-out to the illustrator. She did a phenomenal job. She was actually a student of my wife's. And that's, I think, one of the, the best stories. And you're exactly right. You know, in terms of age level, the thing I'll say about this, um, my son really enjoyed it because he's really into science and nature and got a lot out of it. I read it myself. And I think it's just a really cool story. So that's why I wanted to give a quick shout out, A, to thank you for doing that. And uh, I also, true to form, I was traveling earlier this week. And when he got the book, he read it like instantly and uh, took a picture of himself with it. So I meant to post that out on social media, which I'll do that a little bit later today. But oh, just congrats. I will say one quick thing also. I know that my wife mentions it in the book, but um, another another shout-out to the inspiration for that book was a tremendous podcast called Radio Lab, which broadcasts out of WNYC, uh, WNYCC, no, sorry, WNYC, and that is um, a, a NPR station in New York City. Amazing. So, yeah, head tip to Radiolab podcast. If you're listening to this, you're obviously into science and teaching. Give that one a listen for sure. Because, you know, with podcasts, there's a whole world of things out there. And I love the fact that that one podcast inspired your wife to write that book. And now look at how many students or how many children out there will learn more about the amazing butterflies in, in nature that's out in the world today. Really cool stuff. Thank you for bringing that up. All right, well, Steve, let's get to the show here. So what I'm going to do quickly, I know um, you've done a podcast before with me, and I appreciate that, um, but some folks might be listening new. So how long have you been teaching a &P? I started teaching a &P in January of 2002. So um, in about a month, it's, I'm going to start my 17th year teaching anatomy and physiology. Awesome. And a lot has changed in those 17 years, hasn't it? Oh, tremendously. And not just with you, of I, course, right? Just the field no, of teaching. Not just me personally, but <laughs> basically um, I, got to, um, I got to experience the, the, the digital renaissance of teaching. Isn't that fun? Yeah, yes, and I remember so. 
remember my my tenure here with Steve in terms of my first uh, meeting with Steve was around the Anatomy and Physiology Reveal product, which is something that we publish. But I remember vividly back when we launched that, it was one of the first products out there that really did what it did, and it's just gotten better over the years. But I know Steve was a big fan, and we often will joke back and forth that back when he experienced it, it was still on uh, CD-ROMs. Yeah. Which four seems different. Four separate CD-ROMs. <laughs> seems like years ago. To, uh, to use, yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. All right, so for the audience, Steve, what's the thing that excites you the most about teaching? Uh, you know, I just really like to see. Um, I like to see the students grow in their knowledge and understanding and their ability to apply. Um, you know, at A and P, I'm just like everybody else. Most of our students are aspiring clinicians, and just to see them take that first class that shows them the light at the end of the tunnel, so they they they, they know. They know there's relevance in what we're doing every single day. So um, just being able to see their interest and excitement, and then and then watch them really kind of uh, grow into into a diagnostician um, simply by recognizing how relevant every little thing we talk about can be in their future careers. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable when you look at the impact that all of you that are listening to this have as educators, and you're really affecting thousands of students when you look at that tree of of people that you're teaching on a daily basis. It's pretty remarkable, and thank you on the behalf of all of us here at McGraw-Hill for doing what you do, Steve, and then all the professors that are listening. Uh, We really appreciate everything that you do on a daily basis. All right. Always my pleasure. You got it. So let's talk, uh, Steve. You did an article, a blog post here for us on critical thinking and the concept application. So what I'd like to know and share with the audience is how did you arrive at evaluating just the measure of critical thinking and concept application so you can incorporate that into your course? Well, obviously, like I said, we're we're training aspiring clinicians and. Um, when you're diagnosing is an art form, it's, it's, it's as well as a science. So we want to make sure that the students not only just memorize a bunch of facts and be able to regurgitate them uh, back at us, but we need to make sure that they can um, apply the concepts and physiology that they're learning to a to a clinical to a clinical setting and scenario. So. Um, I recognized pretty early on that it really wasn't enough for these students to just be able to memorize a bunch of muscles or bones or cellular structures and be able to label them for me. Um, it really was important for them to understand that these things are dynamic structures in the human body that are constantly doing something and, and contributing to the overall function of the of the organism, and um, and I want to make sure that they can that they can see that, and that they can take the stuff that we're learning in anatomy and physiology and understand why certain conditions, for example, being clinical, uh, why certain conditions would cause the signs and symptoms that they do because of how they affect the functions of those particular anatomical structures. 
that requires a student to apply concepts and to really think critically about what they're learning. Um, and critical thinking doesn't really stop at that. It also, it also goes in the way that they evaluate data, the way that they evaluate a source and, and recognize uh, something valid over um, something that's just someone's opinion or something that's just been scribbled out somewhere with, with, with no basis in, scientific, in the scientific method. So I want them to think critically about all of the information that we talk about, and then I want them to apply the physiological concepts um, that we cover in my class so that they can, you know, they can someday understand why that would clinically apply the way it does. Now, I would imagine as you look at critical thinking and the fact that you're going to have more difficult questions, so you're going to be in the blooms three and higher range, I would imagine, in, in most cases, just to generalize, I could see where a student might either push back or ask, why are you asking me so difficult questions? Like, what would you say back to that student? So I have a clinical background myself, so I would I usually explain to the student that you know, if they're going to be in a clinical scenario or a clinical situation, um, they're going to see things that, that don't necessarily present themselves exactly the way a textbook does. So one of, the, one of, one of my mentors when I was a student um, used to say to me, the diseases don't read the textbooks. So they're not always going to present exactly the way that you would expect them to. So you need to have nuance and you need to be able to to think about what you're seeing in front of you think about what you learned in the past and really allow those things to to um, to be added together or multiplied together or sometimes divided or however they need to think about it and they need to understand that that there's more to this than just being able to look it up on a page and being able to find the answer so I want them to be able to construct the answer to, by, by knowing what they know, seeing what they see in front of them, and trying to make heads or tails of that. And, um, and when I give them some clinical scenarios, um, they usually get that. So, so when they, if they do push back on how hard this course is or why this, or, or, or they see a question and they say, well, there's nothing in the notes about this, well, then that's my opportunity to teach them how to find the pieces of that in the notes and, and in separate parts of the notes maybe or in the digital um, assignments that I gave them or in the textbook or in the lab simulation or, or in our lab um, materials and find the parts that they need to use to come to that answer um, rather than just be able to look up what page that answer is on and be able to write it back to me because while that has its place, um, that's just not enough for a class like this. That won't, that, won't, that won't develop the clinicians that we need to be developing in our course. Boy, I could not agree more. And to that end, you talk a lot in this article about consistency and just making sure that you have a solid effort related to practice. Why is consistency so important in AP? Uh, consistency in um, in uh, the way that I deliver the course in their in their assignments is that what you mean by consistency? Yeah, consistency just in terms of practicing either you know in the course materials that you're deploying like digitally or just consistency with making sure that you actually do just show up to practice. Yeah, 
Okay, right, right, right. So, um, yeah, so what I do in my class is I give them a lot of practice in terms of uh, the way that the practice I give them is in homework assignments. So my students typically, they do their reading assignment before class, and I use SmartBook for that, so that way they can, um, they can answer questions throughout their reading assignment. They can watch videos and other uh, digital digital learning tools that will help them to achieve the learning outcomes covered in the reading assignment that I gave them. Um, then we have our class time where we do our traditional class uh, time activities, whether it's a lecture or a group activity or a lab or a lab simulation or a flipped kind of classroom discussion, um, whether we go over clinical scenarios, you know, all the things that typically we do in our, in our course time. And then after that, I want them to then have assignments, and I do this digitally through Connect. I use the question banks and Connect. Um, I want them to have practice answering the hard concept application, problem solving, critical thinking type questions that I'm gonna expect them to be able to do on an exam. I want them to practice those skills because we know from cognitive scientists and, and most of the data that's out there right now that those data tell us that in order for a student to master a, a skill, practice beyond the level of mastery is necessary. So for me, it's not about practice makes perfect, it's about perfect practice makes perfect. And I want them to, to practice those skills on a weekly basis for every unit we cover. There is a high level, at home, critical thinking type uh, homework assignment that is going to prepare them for the kinds of questions I put on my exams to make sure that they have mastered the material to the level that I need them to, uh, to prepare them for their next step, which is usually, in my case, nursing school, occupational therapy school, physical therapy school, physician's assistant school, um, you know, things like that, where they're really gonna go into their clinical study. Uh, so, so I think it's really important to, to to get them into a habit of effort that is consistent uh, across the semester in practicing the skills that I expect them to, to be able to do on exams. And I think it's also fair for me to give them that so that when, if they demonstrate that they don't really have those skills, then I can help them. And that's my job, is to make sure that I can help remediate them to get them to a level, rather than just weed out the students who couldn't do it already before they met me because that really isn't my job. Excellent. Now, Steve, in the area of critical thinking, what does a digital homework system like Connect do better than what a textbook can? Well, so a textbook is great. So um, obviously the textbook has the content, and the content um, that we use in my class, um, coming from Saladin, um, is, is premier content, and and um, and the same goes for most of the the books in our in our realm. They've they've been around for a long time. They've been revised. They've been, you know, they've been uh, authored by um, excellent people in our field, and the content is great. But the content on a page doesn't change, and it doesn't adapt to whether or not the student understands it. So, I mean, I've, I've read through articles and textbooks in my lifetime and my career as a student and as an instructor, and, and I've gotten through 
a couple of pages, and I have no idea what was even happening on that page. I don't understand half of what was talked about. So I've definitely come across that in trying to read some journal articles that are just over my head. Um, and, and so when the textbook is over the student's head, we need to find another way to get to them. And, and we can get to them through digital courseware, like adaptive learning tools like Learn Smart Prep or SmartBook, where, okay, so you're, we can measure in the digital tool whether or not the student is achieving the learning outcome that's been assigned. We can do that with questions and probes. And then we can analyze those data that are collected from the student's responses, and we can offer them other learning resources that might help supplement that content, like a tutor-style video or a slide that has been generated or created by someone to help explain something that looks better visually to people rather than textually. Um, and so now we can reevaluate them through the probes and see if they have um, better understood those learning outcomes. And that's, that's just one piece. That's just the adaptive piece. I mean, I can all, and I also do the same thing with my homework assignments that are from the question banks in Connect, where now I have the harder stuff. And every one of those questions is also tagged to learning outcomes and pages and sections of the textbook and um, figures in the textbook, topics in anatomy and physiology, which we, we get from, from maps, uh, and levels of Bloom's taxonomy. So we know whether the student is, is struggling just with the higher level stuff or are they, are they honestly just struggling with some of the basic memorization things that we need to do. And that's all really, really good information. So there's a lot of ways a digital system can, can help, me, help me more than a textbook. And, and, and it all is rooted in data collection and being able to collect the data that are going to tell us how our students are doing and what they need before it's too late. Because when they fail the exam, it's too late. And, uh, and that's not really helpful to them. Yeah, I always liken it to an early alert system. But also something I think you said so well is you can present the information in a textbook, but maybe that in combination of a learning resource like you mentioned that's where you can capture them in a different way, really appeal to them, and bring them into the content in a much more effective way, which is just excellent. <clears throat> All right, well, Steve, let's transition a little bit. So I know sometimes the, the difficult part here is, you know, you have yourself, you've been teaching for a long time, but now let's talk about the adjunct community. And let's say if I'm a brand new adjunct at Bucks County Community College, and I came to you and I said, hey, I want to incorporate digital or maybe critical thinking into my course. How would you, you know, advise me on starting? Uh, that's a good question um, because I've been using Connect and Learn Smart for almost nine years. So I use a lot of digital technology in my class, but it is a process of cumulative selection of really finding the best things that, that work the best for me over time and adding piece by piece. So that can be a little overwhelming for people. So 
a lot of times when instructors take, say, um, hey, can you show me what you do in your class, and, and I go through it with them, they're, um, they're a little overwhelmed. And so, and that's fine. I, I, would, I always tell people, you gotta start small. Um, you can't expect to, um, you know, take everything all at once and incorporate it right away um, in, in, in one semester. So what's great is that um, Connect makes it really easy to set up assignments digitally that you can just uh, pick pretty quickly, make a due date, put it on your assignment, and, and it's auto-graded. It will sync with your learning management system's gradebook, and then you're, you're good to go to start working on the next higher level stuff that might take a little more time. So usually I would say start with SmartBook or, and or learn Smart Prep. They're really easy to assign. Um, they're reading assignments. You want your students to do the reading assignments before class. We beg the students to do the reading assignments before class, and they don't always do them because there's really no way to hold them accountable for doing them, and they know that. They know they're not gonna get found out if they don't do them. Um, so with SmartBook, we can assign a reading assignment. It's got questions and probes based on the learning outcomes, and they can, um, and we can tell wh whether or not they've done it. And they will, we can put it as part of their grade to give them a little more incentive. And it's really easy to do that. You can set up an entire semester's worth of, of SmartBook assignments in probably half an hour. Um, you can just, you just outline the dates that you're pretty sure you're going to be covering certain things, make them do on those dates, and, and let it roll. Uh, the rest, the rest is um, you know done for you as an auto graded assignment, and then you've got students coming to class who have done your readings, and that makes class a lot easier because you don't have to um, you don't have to slow down for people who never heard um, the term endoplasmic reticulum before because you know they've done the reading. Love that word, by the way. That's a big one, endoplasmic reticulum. Yeah, it's among my favorite organelles. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so if you had a method or maybe a tactic or strategy that related to critical thinking that you thought was, like, so well-intended but just didn't work out, do you have any examples like that you'd be willing to share with the audience? So um, something that just didn't work out. Well, I will say this. I, um, I really tried... Um, to incorporate discussion discussion boards, digital discussion boards in my class. And I know people do this really, really well. Um, and I would love for someone to help me out on that because um, I'm always looking to, to improve. Um, but I've never really had a lot of success with discussion boards, digital discussion boards in my class. Um, it just doesn't work. It just it just ha never really was organic to me as a good discussion in class, right? Which is spontaneous. So sometimes, and, and and everyone listening to this has the same experience, I'm sure. Sometimes in your class, you're talking about nerve tissue, you're talking about myelination, and you're almost guaranteed to have a class who, in which someone has multiple sclerosis or know someone who has multiple sclerosis. And, and they raise their hand and they, and they bring it up and ask a question. And that turns into a half an hour discussion about myelination and uh, nerve conduction velocity and um, the, 
the difference between the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system in terms of in terms of that and and what kind of symptoms you might expect and why that happens and and, and all of that comes down to like a, this really good organic discussion that spawned out of someone's interest that most people in the class are probably going to be interested in. I mean, if you take a class about computer science because the school um, requires it, that's going to be interesting to a lot of people because we all use computers. But when you take a class on human anatomy and physiology because you're going to be a clinician, that's going to be interesting to everybody. Oh, yeah. Mainly because they, they want to be a clinician and because we all have a human body. Right? And we all, and all of our families have human bodies. And our loved ones have human bodies. And human bodies sometimes don't do what they're supposed to do. And, and that's when it gets interesting. And so, and, and so the level of interest really picks up. So I really wanted to get that going in discussion boards, but when I force the discussion, it just doesn't seem to work as well. So that's something that I, that, you know, I, I really wanted to get going, especially in an online class, a hybrid class, and it just never really panned out for me. So um, I'm sure that at the, at the end of this podcast, my contact information will be up there. If oh, anyone's yeah. got some suggestions on what they've done with discussion boards and uh, things like that that worked, share because uh, I would love to hear that. Yeah, and Steve, I was just thinking as you were mentioning that, we have a portal that we support here at McGraw-Hill. Anybody can sign up for it. It's called I Teach Anatomy and Physiology. And I'm thinking that might be a great one to maybe throw out to the group there. So we'll talk about that offline, but certainly uh, at the end of the podcast, we'll share Steve's contact info. And if you have a suggestion or you know of someone who's got a really good strategy as to how they use discussion boards in their class. And I think the cool thing is, especially if it's anatomy and physiology, but if it's science related or even in any other way, we'd love to learn from that. So definitely keep those ideas coming. All right, Steve, so now this is going to be a fun question for you. When you look at your student population, the students that you're teaching right now, do they have a favorite way that you kind of use critical thinking or or application in your course that you can tell? I will tell you this. To be totally honest, my students love the lab simulations. Awesome. Um, Especially anatomy and physiology reveal. I have students that come at a community college. Our, our budgets are tight. Our labs are fantastic. We have we have a brand new science building, which is which is great, but we do not have a cadaver lab. And I've got students taking human anatomy and physiology. We're dissecting fetal pigs and sheep brains and sheep hearts and bovine spinal cords and kidneys, and, and that's all great. But the students are humans. And they're, and they're all going to be clinicians for humans. And when they start playing with anatomy and physiology revealed, and I give them, I give them pretty high-level assignments with that program, um, they, their interest is so energized because they are, they are getting to, to virtually dissect a real human being in, in, in interactive photos. I get that. But this is nothing they've seen before. And they are so excited to be able to virtually dissect a human cadaver 
uh, with that simulation. That um, that seems to be the, the one that the students like the best. And then, of course, like I've mentioned a hundred times already in this in this particular podcast, um, anytime something you know, goes to the mechanism of a common disease or injury or condition like Parkinson's disease or diabetes, um, atherosclerosis, um, you know, you name it, the things that, you know, and, and, and cancer, um, you know, the things that affect everybody's life. Um, that really interests them. You get that look. You get that look in a student's face where you, you talk about, for instance, why someone with diabetes might have the symptoms they do in terms of uh, excessive urination and thirst and um, things like that. And then all of a sudden you get these people who are like, they kind of close their eyes and nod their head a little bit thinking, yep, that's, that's what my dad has, you know, or that's exactly how that's written. And now I understand because of the way um, the membranes work, why that would be. Uh, so. They, that that gets them excited when they can understand it, even if it's just something where, oh, I saw that on Chicago Med or ER or Grey's Anatomy. Now I get it. Now I get why they say we have normal sinus rhythm because it's the sinoatrial node that determines the heart rate. So um, it's, it's just fun to see that uh, in students. Yeah, that's fun. Now, speaking of students, what if you um, decided to make a career change? You know, like, I'm going to go study business, something outside of your realm. <clears throat> you went back to school today. What would you look the most forward to? Huh, let's see. So, well, I like to learn new things that I haven't really um, ever studied before. So I think that the access to content, is probably what I would be most excited about if I enrolled as a college student today. That didn't exist when I was in college in the early 90s. Um, so just the fact that that um, I could do research from my pocket, you know? Yeah, it's I mean, great. The, the, the world of knowledge exists in something the size of my hand and, and um, that I have with me all the time. So I would be really excited by um, the mobile readiness of content. Um, it is something that, that really excites me. Um, and if I was a, if, if I was a, if I was enrolled in a, in a college as a student today in some field other than my own, um, I, you know, just just the digital technology that exists, I'm always trying to uh, double that up um, uh, and and, um, and trying to learn more from that and. and what we have, the tools we have, make that so much more accessible. You know what? I'm going to just say ditto to all that because if I were doing going back to school today, that would be the thing that would excite me the most is just the access to information and content. You know, that can go both ways, of course, but uh, that'd be pretty cool. So I've got two more quick questions for you, Steve. Um, what do you hope for? Like, if you had one hope for education in the next 15 to 20 years, what would that be? One hope. Yes. I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a, a, um, a, uh, a bigger answer than just one hope. You got it. Um, my hope uh, in education is, is, is 
I want it to be accessible to every single human being on the planet. Nice. You know, so I get that's a little bit of a lofty hope, but, you know, I would really like for every individual to have access to education. Um, yeah. And, and I, assuming that access occurs or whoever, whoever does have access, I would really like them to, to expand. I, I would like our educational system to make their main focus on information and scientific literacy. I, I, I would like for people to be able to detect baloney. Yep. Well, and, 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 and discriminate and, and, and be able to differentiate between valid information that is sourced and evidenced and, and junk. That, that, that would be my... That would be my, my main hope for an education. Um, and, and maybe that should be put before we give access to everybody. Yeah. It might, yeah. It might be a little safer move if we cover <clears throat> that first and then get access for everybody. Yeah, let me let me put those in that order. There you go. Uh, let's, yeah, let's not disseminate a bunch of garbage. Well, even though I think you, you mentioned it's a lofty goal, just the overall access, I think we're better equipped today. And, you know, this will progress, you know, with more um, fiber optics all across the world. Um, But just everything that's changing, costs are getting driven down, which isn't a a good thing. I don't think it's too lofty. Um, So I think that's a great, uh, there's two good answers to that question, Steve, and and thank you for sharing that. So the last question I I have. I think it's important, um, really quick, um, if I could just. No, yeah, go ahead, yeah. That's a really important point you brought up about how access. seems like it would be a much easier, much more attainable goal right now because of our um, digital infrastructure and because of of the information superhighway, if people are still calling it that. But I want to make sure that everyone still retains their equal access to that. And um, and not to get political, but I think net neutrality is a big big part of that, and I think we need to make sure that um, access to this information is shared equally and um, and and not discriminated. Oh yeah, well I'm glad you mentioned that, Steve. So me personally, I'm a huge advocate for net neutrality. And if you're listening to this, we have about maybe a week left before we can uh, formally state our case uh, for preserving net neutrality. So there's a lot of, of web resources out there. Write your representatives. We need to make sure that we preserve that because that could be one big change that takes us a, a giant step backwards, and that'd be heartbreaking to see because uh, that really is kind of a it's a big issue right now. And I think the way it's going, we're going to lose that uh, freedom, if you will. And I don't think we should. I think that's definitely a big step backwards, and it might be even fifteen steps backwards. But uh, glad you mentioned that because we we do need to preserve that in a big way. Well, Steve, last question real quick. Uh, how can people in the audience find you? Uh, um, I'm often at a local coffee shop in my town if they want to stop in. <laughs> but, uh, but, but to make it easier, um, they can reach me at uh, my, my email address through my college is uh, stephen.sullivan, and that's Stephen with a P-H-E-N. So S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot Sullivan 
at bucks.edu, bucks like a um, like a deer, B-U-C-K-S. And I'm in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, um, uh, just over the river from, from central New Jersey, about 20 miles north of Philadelphia. Awesome. And if you have trouble reaching Steve, you can always send me an email as well. My email address is James dot c-o-n-n-e-l-y at mh education and uh, steve just want to thank you on the behalf of our audience and everyone here at mcgraw hill for you spending this wonderful half hour with us today it was very insightful i learned a lot i hope you uh, enjoyed the conversation as well and we're going to see everybody back here on succeed in amp probably in about two weeks from now so hope you all have a great day and a great holiday season if we don't talk and uh, we'll be chatting with you soon Thank you so much, Jim. It's been a, a, a great pleasure to, uh, to talk with you, as always. You bet, Steve. And you have a good rest of your day. You too. All right. Talk to you later. Bye.